chapter 18, verse 1. The Levitical priests, indeed, the entire tribe of Levi, who have no allotment or inheritance with Israel, and they may eat the burnt offerings of Yahweh as their inheritance. And they will have no inheritance in the midst of their fellow Israelites, and Yahweh alone is their inheritance, just as he told them. This shall be the priest's fair allotment from the people who offer sacrifices, whether bull or sheep. They must give to the priests the shoulder of the jowls and the stomach, and you must give them the best of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, as well as the best of your wool, and when you shear your flocks, for Yahweh your God has chosen them and their sons from all their tribes to stand and serve in his name permanently. Suppose a Levite comes by his own free will from one of your villages, from any part of Israel where he is living, to the place that Yahweh chooses. And he serves in the name of Yahweh his God and his fellow Levites who stand there before Yahweh. He must eat the same share they do, despite any profits he may gain from the sale of his family's inheritance. So the next thing he deals with his kings, then he goes to priests. He says the priest's inheritance is in Yahweh is not in the land. They're not given land. It is not in their inheritance that they inherit from their parents. They're not given anything. They're given inheritance through the sacrifice and the charity and the donations of the people to them. Now this does two things. First, he's saying honor the priest by giving them their share. Because they are serving you. They have no inheritance. Yahweh is their inheritance. You are to honor them by donating to them by giving them their share. But the second thing it's also doing is it's forcing the Levites, like the king, to be completely dependent upon God because they have a position of power over the people and influence. But by making them completely dependent upon donations and the sacrifices of the people, they, like the king, are now dependent upon God providing for them. And so both as they honor the priests, you people, and it's also keeping the priests in check. Yes? Why can it say um, what they receive from the sale of their father's estates if they don't have estates? Because remember, their parent, you could donate land to the priests, and then the priests would own that land. So the priests could then inherit that land from their father because of somebody's donation. But if, So then if they sell, sell that land for whatever reason... You're not allowed to say, well, they have all this money from selling their land, so I don't need to provide for them anymore. And God is saying, no, you still have to provide because that, that money is only going to go so far. So remember, you, you can donate children you could, because Hannah is going to donate her son. You could donate land. You could donate animals to the priests beyond just animal sacrifices. And so they could sell those things. But the point was that they don't have... But the thing is, in the year of Jubilee... If you sold your land to a priest, then the land that they have goes back to the original owner. In the year of Jubilee, because the Levites didn't start off with any land, nothing comes back to them. So the year of Jubilee guarantees that land will come back to me eventually. The priests don't have any guarantee that land will come back to them because it wasn't there to begin with. And so that's why you still need to provide for them. Even if they seem to have a good economy or a good account, and they seem to be making money off of sales, you still have to provide for them because they're not as secure as you are because you have a guaranteed tribal inheritance. They don't. You're welcome. So we're dealing with king, priests, and now prophets. These are the three major offices in Israel. Verse 9, When you enter the land of Yahweh your God is giving you, you must not lean 
learn the abhorrent practices of these nations. There must never be found among you anyone who sacrifices son and daughter in the fire, anyone who practices divination or omen reading or soothsayer or sorcerer, one who casts spells, one who conjures up spirits, a practitioner of the occult or necromancer. So he goes through this thing. Now, what he's saying is that the prophet being connected to the spiritual realm or the divine council can really lead you astray if he's corrupt. So you are to honor the prophet by keeping him in check too. So it's interesting that all these leaders, you're to honor them, but you're also to keep them in check. You're to hold them accountable. That's a type of honoring. And so he says that any prophet who is going to be connected to the spiritual realm, because prophets are people who are gifted in being connected to the spiritual realm, but they could choose to be connected to the good part of the spiritual realm or the demonic part. And so how do you keep this prophet in check? If this prophet comes along and says, you're to sacrifice your daughters or your sons in the fire to these gods, you're not allowed to follow them. God abhors child sacrifice. That's what he says in verse 12, is that he abhors these acts. Anyone who practices divination. Divination is seeking the will of the divine gods. So divine. So the gods are divine, so you're now seeking gods or spirits to guide you or lead you where you're supposed to be. Now, Israel had a form of divination. It was the Urim and the Thummim. And they were two stones that God allowed the priests to cast to figure out whether God was saying whatever. But the difference is they were going to God, the ultimate sovereign God of the entire universe for those answers, where divination in general is going after any spiritual godlike being. And so what God is saying is that one, usually consulting these other gods involve very dark practices that are not beneficial for you or your family. But two, you're seeking the created to guide you and not the ultimate creator. And that's what makes it abhorrent is that it's basically adultery. You're going after something else that is not in your covenant to seek that out. So divination is seeking other gods or spiritual beings or angels. Omen readers. Omen readers are people who look at the stars or patterns in the weather or um, breaking wishbones open or cutting an animal open and spilling its intestines or casting tarot cards or bones or any of those kind of things. Or signs like the four blood moons or all this kind of stuff. And you look at all these things and you believe that the universe is telling you something about what you should do or what decision you're making. Once again, you're looking to creation for your guidance rather than the creator. And that's what makes it, there's nothing especially demonic about throwing a bunch of dice on the table. But if you're looking at a dice to tell you something about your future, then that's kind of jacked up. And so that's what God is like, is preaching against here. A soothsayer or sorcerer. A soothsayer is someone who says that they can see into the future or they see somewhere else in the, the universe what's happening. And they're going to tell you what's going to happen in the future or they can tell you what's happening somewhere else. And once again, you're depending upon that person rather than God to tell you what to do. A sorcerer actually comes from the uh, Greek, or in the Greek it's um, pharmakia. And so someone who uses drugs to connect to the spiritual realm. And drugs or alcohol are used a lot to connect to spiritual beings because what it does is it lowers 
your defenses, your guards on your mind, and it lowers your ability to self-control, basically, your defenses, and it allows other things to come in and influence you. And even the Satanic Bible starts with, take drugs and wine and strange chemicals, and I will lead you. And this is a serpent talking. And so, and every, most people who take LSD or ecstasy says that they experience something like a demon possessing them and taking control of them. And so there's, there's what basically is drugs are the gateway to going to the other side. And that's why Sorcerer's name typically came out of that, because even in movies and stuff, they're typically high and that kind of stuff. And in fact, there's a very famous guy by the name of Aldous Huxley who wrote a book called The Doors of Perception, and it was about how the drugs would help you break through and go to other places. And then Jim Morrison took the line from that book and named his band The Doors, and he said, I dedicated my entire band to helping people break onto the other side to consult with spirits and stuff. So that's where the sorcerer comes from. One who casts spells, basically Harry Potter, um, doing, trying to think that what's, what in the magical world is called action at a distance, being able to control things at great distance without physically touching it. And so it's the, basically the desire to control the world around you through magical spells or anything like that. And then conjure up spirits. And so this is the direct connection to spirits and talking them. The occult, the occult basically, we think of occult as Satanism, but the occult is basically just hidden or secret tree, meaning. So you're basically looking to secret things. And if you figure out the secret, then you have an upper hand on everybody else and how to get power. And necromancer are people who talk to the dead or raise the dead or use the dead as warriors to protect themselves like a necromancer army. What is the main thing against all this? That you're going to other things to gain power and knowledge, other than God. Not only will these things not help you, I mean, these things do have power. Now, you, we can't go to the extreme and act like these things don't have power. And when I've talked about this multiple times, we have power. Humans have the power to create computers. We have the power to create bombs that can wipe out tons of people. We have the power to send people up into outer space. We have the power to cure incredible diseases. If we have power like that, then the demonic world has power to do things. It's not that they don't have power. The Bible never denied the power of the demonic world. The Bible has never denied the power of humans. What is denied is that we have ultimate power, that we can truly control everything, that we can make anything happen the way that we want, and that these other things can too. And so the problem is, one, they're going to something inferior to Yahweh that will ultimately in the end fail them, never mind the fact that you can't really trust them and they'll deceive you, but two, that they're stepping outside their covenant relationship with Yahweh. They're going to something other than the one that they marry themselves to, in order to find um, satisfaction. And three, they're trying to control things through their own power rather than God. And this takes you right back to the garden, that they want autonomy. They want control of their own lives, and they're determining what's right or wrong. And the thing that the reason is specifically forbidding these is because, remember, the prophets are connected to the spiritual realm. So the thing that they're seeking out is spiritual. 
So here's the thing. With the king, he's not connected to the spiritual realm. So what he's going to corrupt him is money and military power, war. The thing that will corrupt a prophet and then the people through the prophet is the military of the spiritual realm and the currency of the spiritual realm. And that's knowledge and spiritual abilities and powers to control things. And the things that could possibly corrupt the priests is doing toning for you through money. That I will forgive your sins or not forgive your sins based on how much you give me. And so each office has its own corruption. Military, spiritual control of your life, or bringing something demonic into your life that you can't control. And God is limiting these. Verse 12, whoever does these things is abhorrent to Yahweh. And because of these detestable things, Yahweh your God is about to drive them out from before you. And you must be blameless before Yahweh your God. Those nations that you are about to dispossess, listen to omen, readers, and diviners. But Yahweh your God has not given you permission to do such things. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This accords with what happened at Horeb and the day of the assembly. You ask Yahweh, your God, please do not make us hear the voice of Yahweh, our God, any more or see the great fire any more lest we die. And Yahweh then said to me, what they have said is good. I will raise up a prophet like you from among those fellow Israelites. I will speak, I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them. And whatever I command, I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words of that prophet speaks in my name. Now, God has already set up Moses as the greatest leader and prophet the world has ever seen. Moses is the giver of law. God has said, I have spoken to no one face to face like I have my servant Moses. Who is more faithful than Moses in my house? No one is. And then they said, we want God to speak directly through Moses and nobody else, which makes Moses more prominent. And at the end of Deuteronomy, the writers are going to add at the end that there was no prophet like Moses and no other prophet ever will be like Moses. Now, in that context, you know that Moses is absolutely unique. And now God says, I'm going to raise another prophet up just like Moses. And then he tells that story again about how you didn't want to hear God. You want God to speak through the prophets. So now you, that's the other reason why the prophets are in the divine council and nobody else is. Because if people said, we don't want to hear the voice of God, we want the prophets to speak to us. So now the prophets are in the divine council, but nobody else is. And now God is saying that there's going to come a prophet one day who will be like Moses and he will be on the divine council speaking face to face with God unlike anybody else ever has. This then sets in Israel's heart a hope for a return of a being like Moses. And over and over again, they're going to look for someone like Moses, like Moses. They're waiting for the return of Moses. David, when we get to David's life, the king, he, for the first time ever, Brings he takes Jerusalem as the capital and he makes it the heart of all kingship power. And then he brings the tabernacle there and he makes that the center of all priestly power. And for the first time ever, the priest and the king 
have come together into one location. Now, God forbid that one man be both king and priest because it's way too much power in the hands of one person. In fact, when Saul, as a king, functions like a priest, God kills him for it. It's punishable by death. But David begins to imagine that if we're really truly going to get this prophet, he's got to have some kind of priestly power as well as some kind of God power. And for the first time ever, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes many psalms talking about this, but two very powerful psalms specifically, and that's Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, and 27 as well. In Psalm 110, David says, My Yahweh spoke to my Lord, I will make you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and you will sit at my right hand as my king, and I will make your enemies your footstool. So David writes a song about a man who is over David, but less than Yahweh, who will become king and priest. And he begins to lay, and then God makes the Davidic covenant with him and says that a person from your house will come one day, and he will build my house meaning my kingdom. And so David puts this all together, and he begins to develop this concept of a Messiah, like the Messiah, a Messianic king. Because David was a Messiah. Solomon was a Messiah. The prophets were all Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, chosen by God. But David envisions a day where this there will, the Messiah will come that will be unlike anybody else, and he begins to envision him as this Moses. When we get to the prophets, the prophets will seize this where David started and really begin to develop it. Now, what's interesting is that when you see Elijah come, Elijah's life is actually told and mirrors Moses' life. And he looks a lot like Moses, making you think, maybe he's the one, maybe he's the one, until Elijah fails miserably and God fires him. And he realized, well, he is like Moses. He disobeyed God and God fired him. And then when you get to Jesus in the Gospels, especially Matthew, the whole beginning of Matthew mirrors the life of Moses. Uh, a king who wants to kill him. He flees as a child to another country. He comes back. He gives a sermon on the mount, just like Moses does. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days. All these things. But the difference is that when he gets to the wilderness, Jesus doesn't fail. And all of a sudden you realize that that's the prophet that Moses was talking about. That Jesus is going to become that prophet. But here's what's even more interesting. Jesus becomes a prophet, and he also becomes a king, and he also becomes a priest. And he becomes a fulfillment of all three of these offices, and he has absolute power, but he's not corrupted. And so these are the seeds, little teeny seeds that God is just kind of dropping, and you know there's something unique, like, oh, wait a minute. He just held all these three people in check and said, check them in their power. And then he ends by saying, but... One day this prophet will come. You know, like that kind of contradicts itself. And that presents a question in your mind that will keep germinating for thousands of years until Jesus comes along and then you're supposed to be able to connect the dots. The problem is they didn't. They didn't. So this is a little seed that is pointing towards Christ. Now, they're not thinking Jesus yet. That's nowhere in their mind. The idea is that when Jesus comes, then you realize, oh my gosh, 
connection, 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 connection. Nobody's going to connect all this before Jesus comes and thinks, this is it. And then when he comes on the scene, they're like, hey, there it is. That's not how prophecy works. It's it comes, and then you see all the connections later. And the light bulb goes off. And so this is what God is promising. Verse 20, But if any prophet presumes to speak anything in my name that I have not authorized him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. So if he speaks anything that God has not condoned, it's the death penalty. And when God gives the prophet access to the divine counsel and gives him the power, thus saith the Lord, then he's held to a much higher standard. Now if you say to yourselves, how can we tell if a messenger is not from Yahweh, whether a prophet speaks in my name and the prediction is not fulfilled, and then I have not spoken it? And the prophet has presumed to speak it, so you need not fear him. So he gives you a test and says, if he predicts something and doesn't come true, then he's a false prophet. But here's the thing. We were just told in chapter 13 that a false prophet can predict things and they can come true sometimes. And in fact, we're going to later see that sometimes the prophets who are godly, like Elijah, will predict things and they will come true, but then they themselves will screw up and even and speak out of turn. Moses spoke out of turn and predicted things and they came true. So that's not an absolute guarantee. So that's why chapter 13 and chapter 18 are so essential to put together. That the first place I, that, that I have two tests going simultaneously, and the two tests are is when they predict, they must always be right. There's no best two out of three. It's all the time. And two, everything they say must be in alignment with who Yahweh is and his character and how he's revealed himself through the Torah. And there's no false prophet that's going to be able to pass both of those set tests simultaneously. And so those are the two things I should be looking at. Is if they truly are of God, then what they speak will always come true. And if they're truly of Yahweh, then what they say will match up with his character. And so those are the two tests that you're to use all the time. And once again, like I mentioned chapter 13, 1 John chapter 4 is going to add a third test. And the third test is that this prophet must also proclaim that Jesus is the human who is also the God King who came and atoned for your sins. And so he adds that third check in, and that's the God, man, death, and resurrection. So they must be in alignment with the character of God. What they say must come true, and they must acknowledge Jesus as the only God-man who is the only one intended for your sins. So that's our checks and balances. And anybody who doesn't do that is not accurate. And so people that call themselves prophets today are not, are not prophets. They're modern-day prophets. Remember, and this, this takes, we have to go through the prophets to understand this. But basically, as you go through the prophets, it becomes very clear that the office of prophet is diminishing. And it's diminishing because Jeremiah 31, 31 says, A day will come when I will write my law on everyone's heart, and no one will need a teacher or the idea is a prophet who will tell you what God's will is. So that remember, nobody knows the will of God except for the prophet, because only the prophet's been in the divine council. Nobody else has been in divine counsel, so nobody else can know the will of God. So only the prophet can tell me, which means if the prophet gets it wrong, he screws us all up. That's what, all the more reason to really hold your prophets in check. 
So Jeremiah 31 says, a day will come when I will write my law on your heart and my spirit will be in you and all people will know God and you will not need a prophet or a teacher to tell you God's will anymore because the divine counsel will be in you. Then what you see is after that, the prophets start diminishing. They, they, they become less knowledgeable. Like in the beginning, God says, what is this, Amos? And Amos says, da-da-da-da. And God's like, that's right, exactly. And then Amos will say something, and God will be like, go, do it, that's good. By the time you get to Zechariah, God is like, what is this? And Zechariah's like, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Ezekiel's like, I don't know what I saw. And you start seeing the problem. They, they almost become spiritually dim-witted. Like, their, their access to the divine counsel is dying out. In fact, there's one scene where Zechariah falls asleep while God is talking in the divine council, and the angel nudges him and tells him, wake up, he's still talking. That's really bad. You thought falling asleep on your pastor was bad. He fell asleep on God. So you see this dim-wittedness begin, and then they're not even invited to the divine council anymore. And nobody even goes in divine council. And then they completely go away for 400 years until Christ comes along. And then when Christ comes along, Christ says, I breathe my spirit upon you. And he breathes. And 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes and the divine counsel comes into us. And the reason I don't need a prophet anymore is because God himself is in me. And it's actually an insult to go to some human on the divine counsel for advice when God himself is dwelling in me. But once again, just like I can't absolutely trust the prophets to always be right, I can't absolutely always trust me. Therefore, as we all come together, then our knowledge of God's will should become greater. And now we can say, let's all pray about this. And if everybody at the end of prayer says, yes, I really feel like this is what God is saying, then I can be more confident. Or if everybody's like, no, I didn't get that, and you're like the only one, then you realize it's the goat cheese you had last night and not the Holy Spirit talking to you. So, so yeah, today there really are no prophets because in some way we're all prophets. But we're not taken up there anymore. God has come and dwelled us. But that doesn't make you think that you are incapable of erring because Moses erred and the man of God erred and Elijah erred and Elisha erred and Jehu erred and Micaiah erred and they all erred and Zechariah is falling asleep and so... Now you, you can't trust yourself completely either. So that's where the body of Christ comes in. But the good thing is there's no, one, no longer one man or one woman. Now it's all of us together. And now I can say, are you hearing the same thing too? And are you hearing the same thing too? And are you hearing... And then we, all, then, then we can be more confident. Does that help? So yeah, people today who are like, I'm a prophet of God. <sighs> nah. And I know that there's a lot of people who disagree with me on that one, but at the same time, once you put it all together, it kind of makes sense. Here's the other thing, too. If God ever, let's say I'm wrong, completely wrong, and the office of prophet is still true in the way that it was back then. If God ever called me the prophet, I would fall on my knees and cry and beg him to not choose me. <laughs> because when you read the life of the prophets, it is miserable. They are completely rejected by everyone, even their own loved ones. People try to assassinate them. Their message is always, when God raises prophets up, people are really screwed up and you're always going to be the negative guy. The prophets never have anything positive. They're always like, you suck, you failed, you failed. God's going to judge you. You're not getting it right. You don't know God. God's going to destroy you. He's bringing a nation to kill you. And then God always tells them, nobody's going to listen to you. 
So, and they're all the most, they're depressed. If you really read them, they would like be clinically depressed. Any psychologist would say, you are clinically depressed. You need the strongest drugs they can possibly find. They try to kill them over and over again. They're completely alone. They're negative all the time. And you're like, oh my gosh. And people are like, I'm a prophet of God. I'm like, I'm sorry. That's like a horrible ministry. I mean, how many times did Jeremiah says, I give up? I'm not doing this anymore. But then the Spirit of God moves in him. He's like, I can't stop talking. But he doesn't want to talk anymore because it's depressing. So there's a lot more than a prophet than, look at me. I'm so great. And the other thing, too, is 95% of the time, the prophets aren't predicting anything. If you really read the prophets, most of the time they're telling people that they're all screwing up and God is going to punish them. There's very little prediction. Very little prediction. I mean, when you read the prophets, it's depressing. It's depressing. And you have to usually wait to the last paragraph before any kind of hope of God comes into it. So, yeah, I would never want to be a prophet. So these are the criteria and the prophets. So that is the end of the fifth commandment.